0: Hi, I'm Talia Baronchelli and you're watching TheAnalysis.News. Joining me today is Shireen al Adimi, who will be speaking to me about Gaza as well as the U.S. and U.K.'s unlawful strikes against Yemen. If you'd like to support the work we do, you can go to our website, TheAnalysis.News, and hit the donate button at the top right corner of the screen. Make sure you get onto our mailing list and like and subscribe to the show wherever you watch it, be it on YouTube, Spotify, or Apple. Thanks again for all of your support, and see you in a bit with Shireen al adimi Joining me now is Shireen al adimi She is a professor of language and literacy at Michigan State University and is a non-resident fellow at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. Thanks a lot for joining me again, Shireen. Thanks for having me, Talia. Well, I wanted to speak to you today about two very important issues, that being Yemen and Gaza. And I think what we've been seeing recently is U.S. and U.K. leaders, as well as the media, trying to disentangle these two issues. And the Houthis themselves had said that if there were to be a ceasefire, they would stop attacking commercial vessels in the Red Sea. And yet the media seems to purposely avoid reporting on this really important fact. So I wonder if that's really landed with people, if people are, are aware of this discrepancy between the cause of the Houthis
1: and solidarity for Palestinians, as well as what the media narrative has been so far. I think people who are paying attention know that these are this is a direct consequence, that all of what Ansarullah are doing in the Red Sea and in the Gulf of Aden is a direct response to what's happening in Gaza. Uh, and it comes at a time where Ansarullah were very close to finalizing a peace deal with Saudi Arabia. As you know, the war in Saudi Arabia has been, you know, lasted since 2015. There was a tenuous ceasefire and negotiations that were happening and an easing of the blockade and all of that. And so an agreement was very close to being signed. And so for them to now disrupt Israel-bound ships... Um, is a direct response to what is happening in Gaza. And they have made that very clear. They had not disrupted international shipping or any shipping at all throughout the nine years, even when they could have. Um, and yet, what is their actions right now in the Red Sea are a direct response to Gaza. But I think there's a willful ignorance um, and, a, and a obfuscation of what the purpose is because it's just easier to paint, oh, these and just yet another you know, Iran-allied quote-unquote group uh, or Iran proxy as just, you know, being, creating chaos with no purpose, which of course we know that's not how these actors in the region behave, and they're independent and autonomous, um, and they have very clear goals, but it's just a matter of who's listening to these goals and who isn't.
0: Well, perhaps one reason they're doing this is to take away from the fact that the U.S. has not been exercising its leverage over Israel to ensure that there is a ceasefire and that there's humanitarian aid going into the Gaza Strip. So they're trying to
1: deflect and just place blame on the Houthis, but also try to shift the narrative there. Absolutely. And um, the U.S. keeps saying that they have no leverage with Israel, just like they had been saying we have no leverage with the Saudis. Meanwhile, you know, they're providing diplomatic cover for for both groups. You know, I'm going to draw these parallels between how the U.S. behaves with Israel and it's uh, the other allies, Saudi Arabia and the UAE. Um, they provide diplomatic cover. We've seen the veto at the UN Security Council for a ceasefire that the U.S. kept imposing. Um, the supply of weapons, saying that we're chiding them privately about a ceasefire but not calling, saying anything about it publicly. All of these trips that Blinken has been taking to the Middle East and really not being productive at all and just repeating the Israeli line that they have the right to def- defend themselves. Uh, or that they feel bad about the deaths in Gaza, but as though these are not a direct consequence of, you know, are perpetrated by the state of Israel, which is the U.S.'s biggest ally. And so um, it's it's absolutely deflection. And I think the other deflecting point here is that when they started bombing Yemen in response to the Houthis' actions in the Red Sea, uh, it was the day that South Africa brought forth its case in the ICJ, the very same day that the world was paying attention to what South Africa was saying. Um in the court, in this uh, international court, the U.S. and the U.K. began, began bombing Yemen um, instead of calling for a ceasefire in Russia.
0: Yeah, well, we will speak about those strikes, which are clearly unlawful. But I did want to point out something. And Sabrina Singh, who is the Pentagon spokesperson, she recently was was talking about how concerned she is that North Korea is giving weapons to Russia to attack. Uh, innocent Ukrainian civilians. But obviously, her concern doesn't really extend to the U.S. supplying Israel with weapons to kill innocent Palestinian civilians. So there's a clear double standard there. And there was a reporter who was pressing her on, you know, the calls that the Biden administration has made for Israel to have a more so-called calibrated approach and whether their calls for a calibrated approach have actually been working. And, and she said, oh, well, Israel has said that they will be um, taking some of their brigades out of Gaza as if that is a way to address the the mass killings and uh, ethnic cleansing and and forcible displacement. So, as you said, they're just talking out of their
1: both sides of their mouth. (laughs) I mean, they're talking out of both sides of their mouth uh, because we are. Yeah, because their their stated views and, you know, there's just such a misalignment between what they're saying and what they're doing. If you're going to say that you're concerned about civilian casualties, then call for an end to, um, you know, perpetrating violence against civilian casualties. But no, they won't do it. If you're going to take at face value what Israel says, but you're going to question, you know, the Gaza health ministry, for example, and so doubt about even the number of casualties only to then admit that they were right all along. All of this is playing um, cover for the Israelis, supporting them in this action. And it's not just that the U.S. has, oh, we just don't know what to do. This is a genocidal project that can only be enacted with full support from the United States. Um, And it's allowed to continue because of the United States support for this genocidal project. So the goals are very aligned between, you know, and even just saying we need a two-state solution when you know that the Israelis have never called for a two-state solution and have outwardly rejected a two-state solution and yet still thinking that we can just repeat this line about, well, we're going to work for a two-state solution, meanwhile, you know, not recognizing or not willing to recognize that this is not even on the table. So it's just a matter of playing politics and obfuscating reality. And, um, you know, I think Trump would have been more honest about it, just as the Republicans tend to be. The outcome is the same but you have this tendency with with uh, democratic presidents including biden to to couch it couch these genocidal actions in language that makes no sense for you know given the the actions that are perpetrated against these people against civilian people in laza and elsewhere yeah of course
0: there's a disconnect between what the israeli officials are saying and the facts on the ground although sometimes they do correspond when uh, like Yoav Galant say that, you know, they're fighting human animals and, and, and that they're going to flatten the place. Um, but even recently, Israel said that they wanted to create a buffer zone in Gaza in order for uh, Israeli citizens who used to live close to the border with Gaza to be able to move back there because Israel also has, like many other countries, a housing issue. And so they're paying a lot of money to house people in in hotels, people who who lived along the border areas and who can't move back right now. So they're saying that, you know, another solution would be to set up a a buffer zone. But this would I mean, this that is against international law. You can't just flatten land and then grab that land saying that that would be in creation of a buffer zone. And unfortunately, Blinken has said, you know, we would maybe accept some sort of transitional um, approach there. And we wouldn't necessarily oppose that. So that's obviously setting a a very dangerous precedent. Well, you did mention the horrible rhetoric of the Republican Party and especially Trump when it comes to Muslims and to people in the Middle East. But if you look at policies of the Biden administration and the Democratic Party, they virtually amount to having the same outcome as that of Republican policies. The rhetoric is just different. So given that you're based in Michigan, how would you say Muslims and Arab Americans in Michigan are responding to what they're seeing in Gaza, the mass killings, as well as to the unlawful strikes in Yemen?
1: Oh, there's there's a lot of anger and frustration and uh, indignation. Uh, Biden barely won the state of Michigan in 2020. Arabs and Muslims came to support in support of uh, Bernie Sanders in the primaries. And when Bernie was not on the Democratic ticket at the end, Um, They, you know, forced themselves, many will tell you, to vote for Biden in order to avoid Trump because we knew that the Muslim ban had occurred under Trump. And so people didn't want to go back to those days. Um, And, you know, Arabs have, uh, and Muslims here in this region, many of them have aligned with the Democratic Party more closely than the Republicans anyway. Um, But he won by 12,000 votes in 2020. And apparently there's no legal path to victory without Michigan. And so this is a really, really important state. And yet, Biden has completely ignored what his constituents in the United States and specifically in Michigan have been calling for, which is ceasefire. Since October 7th, people have been calling for a ceasefire for the U.S. not to uh, provide support for the Israeli response, for the U.S. not to provide diplomatic cover. And Biden has done nothing but, you know, go against the wishes of his own constituents. And so the consequences of that is that, um, you know, has. He's not even able to meet with members of the community without backlash. His advisor is supposed to meet with people in the community today and that got canceled. Because even the idea of meeting leaders in the community, meeting with Biden or his advisors is seen as a, as a you know, these people are going to be seen as traitors, given what's happening to our brothers and sisters in Gaza. And so the issue of Palestine unites us in a way that so many other issues do not. And I think Biden is either not understanding that dynamic or surrounding himself with people who are telling him, oh, they're just going to forget about it. You know, when he's trying to position himself as like, well, I'm not Trump, that's not going to work anymore because nothing is worse than genocide. And that's what people here have been saying. Nothing is, absolutely nothing is worse than genocide. The Muslim ban is not worse than genocide. So why would we vote for somebody who has aligned himself so strongly, you know, in, in line with uh, a state that is being accused of committing genocide? Um, and so I think he's... Um, Willfully, you know, ignorant, or just hoping that they're going to move on and forget about it. But I think he's going to be in for a surprise. If uh, and again, this should not be a surprise. And I also think it's a bit too late now to try to make amends to the Ottoman Muslim community. Uh, we've all been watching what's happening in Gaza on our phones, you know, streaming. They're streaming the genocide live, right? And so we've seen that. Um, and people in, especially in the Dearborn community, they're very attuned to family back home. Many of them have lost family members back home, either in Lebanon or in Palestine. Uh, Palestine. And so, um, and then of course you have a huge Yemeni community in Dearborn as well. And there's a lot of support for the actions that are um, seen as preventing genocide that we're seeing in the in the Red Sea. Um, and so I think that it's going to be a very difficult thing for him to to win Michigan.
0: And he's probably also underestimating the role that social media has been playing in in this particular genocide, this ethnic cleansing. Because, of course, there have been so many journalists who have been killed in Gaza. Palestinian journalists, I believe, over a hundred have been killed, and, and the Biden administration has not really mentioned them at all, um, or, or you know, feigned any sort of pretense to care about them at all. And but people are aware of this because they're watching. On, on TikTok and on, on Instagram and different social media platforms they are watching what these journalists are posting as well as what other accounts are posting. So I feel like this particular um, conflict has been really heavily reliant on journalists on the ground there because so many other news agencies have been prevented from entering Gaza to expose what's going on on the ground. So people there have really had to use their phones as much as possible to document what is going on.
1: Exactly, and they're seeing it in front of them every time they turn on their TVs or look at their phones. They're, um, you know, high schoolers are seeing it and coming out in protest, and um, so Gen Z and the younger millennials, the older millennials, the elders in the community. This is an issue that unites us all as Arabs and as Muslims, and so um, this is going to be a very very difficult task for him. And and he's ignoring, I think, the role of social media in his statement in the hundred day after you know the, on the hundred days of. Uh, of war in gaza the white house statement made no mention not one single mention of palestine or palestinians and their suffering and it focused entirely on the hostages and so you know that was seen also as a huge slap in the face that you're not even trying to to do the both sides which is what people here are used to right even when they feel like this is a really asymmetrical issue we're used to the both sides language Biden couldn't even get himself to do that. And so he's clearly not interested. I mean, he must not be interested in a second term if this is how he's behaving. He must be more interested in aligning himself with Israel. Um, and and I've heard members of the community say, what is, why is Israel so special? Why is Israel so much more important than a second term? Um, and Biden is not understanding that this is how people are viewing him here. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because that statement that
0: Biden made 100 days into the war was pretty appalling. It did show that he could only empathize with the innocent Israelis who had been killed by Hamas and empathize with the families of the hostages, but could not empathize with the thousands of Palestinians who have been slaughtered in Gaza, mostly with the use of U.S.-supplied weapons to Israel. And that brings me to another really important development, and that was Bernie Sanders trying to bring a resolution which was rejected by the Senate, which would call for inst- investigations into whether uh, human rights violations are being committed tied to the supply of weapons to Israel. So whether, you know, U.S. weapons are, are directly um, involved in, in committing acts of ethnic cleansing and genocide. And it wasn't even a declaratory statement saying that this is the case, that that U.S. weapons are implicated in human rights violations. It was just, you know, a motion to investigate. And even that was shut down, um, which is pretty pathetic. I wonder what you make of that.
1: Right. They just want to put their head in the sand and pretend that they're not. They don't want to know. You know, I mean, 70 percent of Israeli weapons are from the U.S. And so, of course, these weapons are being dropped on civilians in Palestine. Of course, they're part of the genocidal project. But even the thought about investigating it puts so many, I mean, I think it also highlights just the disconnect between these members of Congress and what the American population wants. We're seeing protests that we've never seen before in favor of Palestine and Palestinians in favor of the ceasefire in Gaza. Just last week, 400,000 people were in D.C. and it's not the only massive um, protest that we've seen. And so... To ignore what the people are saying, all of these polls are saying that the majority of uh, Americans are calling for, in favor of calling for agenda for a ceasefire, and to just ignore all of those statistics, all of those data, you know, ignore their own what they're seeing in their own backyard in D.C., um, and to not even be willing to to investigate, I think highlights the um, the way that this, this country, and we've known this for a long time, of course, but just the um, intricate relationship between um, the Israeli lobby, or APAC, uh, and other groups, and members of the Senate, that even just the idea of investigation is something that makes them uncomfortable, and that they would shut it down. Uh, and Bernie is no angel in this; he's not called for a ceasefire to the disappointment of so many of us who had supported him in the past. Um, and for him to even just, even even just this little piece about we should investigate whether our weapons are used illegally, because it is illegal for U.S. weapons to be used in you know to harm civilians. But we know that uh, that happened in the UAE. We know it happens in Saudi Arabia. Um, you know, they've rejected any kind of calls before to to move motions that are similar to this. So I think this just highlights just a disconnect between Congress and what the people want. But it, it's also happening or did happen in Yemen, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And... Um... And that was an isolated, an isolating fight. And you and I have spoken before um, about, you know, the efforts here in to bring attention to the U.S. complicity in Yemen. U.S. complicity in Yemen was far greater than U.S. complicity in Israel. Right. Um, It wasn't just a matter of providing diplomatic cover, not just, these are huge, but diplomatic cover and weapons. But the U.S. was also involved in training Saudi and UAE soldiers in mid-air refueling for the first several years of the war, Uh, logistics. Uh, Intelligence sharing, targeting in the command, choosing targets from the command room, providing spare parts and maintenance, um, everything essentially except for pulling the trigger, and they were implicated through and through in these war crimes that were you know being perpetrated against the Yemeni people through the Saudis and the UAE, and yet there was no massive mobilization until 2019 when it was seen as Trump's war. You know it started under Obama, continued through Trump and Biden, but when it was seen as Trump's war. We were able to mobilize people within, especially the Democrats, to move forward this motion and um, pass a War powers resolution to end the hostilities in Yemen, only for Trump to veto it, of course. But then it died down when Biden became president again, because there's this idea that, you know, they want to play politics. It's not about human rights. It's not about civilian casualties, despite what they've been lecturing us about Ukraine for the last two years. It never really is about human rights or peace or diplomacy or casualties or the right to life or water or food or any of that, because we've allowed it to happen in Yemen with full support from the United States, not even like being in on the sidelines. No, just fully involved planning and perpetrating it. Uh, and we're allowing it to happen now in uh, in Gaza with our own tax dollars here in the United States. Well, the U.S. and U.K. have also been striking
0: Houthi controlled areas in Yemen, but these strikes are not going to do anything. I mean, only a large-scale military operation could deter the Houthis because they're clearly on the side of the Palestinians and they're attacking commercial vessels because of what's going on in Gaza. So they're not going to like a few strikes are not going to stop them from what they're doing. And again, when I was listening to um, this Pentagon spokesperson and then Admiral John Kirby from the National Security Council, he was saying that you know these strikes are targeted. They're they're not they don't serve in escalating the conflict at all. So what is the I mean, what is the point of these strikes then if they're not actually going to deter the Houthis and they're completely illegal because Biden did not look for the approval from Congress to launch these strikes? So they're, and you can't claim that they're in self-defense because defense against what? I mean, they, the Houthis were not attacking American ships at the very beginning. It was only later on that they started to attack American vessels. Um, vessels that were traveling through the Suez Canal um, that would then end up in Israeli ports. So what is the point of these strikes? I mean, do you see any logic in this at all, aside from the fact that they're illegal?
1: I mean, it just represents, um, it's, it's part of the pattern of how Biden handles conflict. So the best predictor of future behavior is past behavior. And, you know, Biden has given us 40, 50 years in Congress, right? And so we know what he's done before. There's never been a war that he opposed. There's never been a conflict that he didn't want to turn into a war. And so this is just a matter of, this is how he responds, whether it was in Afghanistan, in Iraq, in Yemen, in Somalia, um, in Palestine, um, in Syria. This is just how he responds. He responds with violence. He doesn't care. He talks about the Constitution all the time. He doesn't care about violating Article One of the Constitution and going to war in these countries without congressional approval. Um, again, the words don't match the actions, right? And when he asked, he was asked directly, "Are these strikes going to deter the Houthis?" No, and he said, "Are they going to continue?" Yes. He asked and answered his own question, and so it makes no sense. And even if they mobilized a larger, you know, group of countries in a larger military operation against uh, Ansarullah, the Houthis in Yemen, we've already seen that movie before. We've seen it from 2015 to 2022, when a coalition of 17 countries was bombing Yemen, was starving Yemen was preventing people from seeking medical care or aid in the name of stomp- stomping out the Houthis, and it only made them stronger. Uh, and this particular issue in Palestine has also united Yemenis who previously were on opposing sides. More people are starting to say, no, actually, this is a legitimate response to the prevention of genocide under the J- Geneva Convention, which is what the Ansarullah have been citing. Um, and when there was a ceasefire in Gaza for six days or so, when they were exchanging hostages, there were no attacks in the Red Sea. And so... Biden knows what it's going to take to to end these, you know, um, attacks on Israeli bound ships. And instead, he decides to respond with violence. And he's not just bombing Houthi targets as his, you know, state media basically keeps repeating. He is targeting areas that are like airports, for example, the Sanaa Airport or Hodeidah Airport. These are not Houthi targets. These belong to the Yemeni people. The Yemeni people have been denied uh, movement within their own country. Um, Sana'a Airport just started operating in the last two years, less than two years, with very limited flights from Sana'a to Jordan as part of the ceasefire negotiations with Saudi Arabia. And for him to bomb that is, you know, it's it's not a military target, right? And so um, I think it's just a matter of like trying the same old rinse, repeat. We just respond with violence and hope things are going to work. They're never going to work. We're going to do it anyway because that's all we know how to do instead of resorting to diplomacy, instead of actually calling for a ceasefire. And, uh, and the mission of, is very clear as well. The group that they formed together to protect shipping um, in Yemen's own backyard, you know, th- thousands of miles away and then claiming defense, is called Operation Prosperity Gu- Guardian. I mean, that's basically an operation to defend capitalism, right? An operation to defend specifically the Israeli economy. And so um, the just the lengths that Biden and Sunak are willing to go to to support the Israeli, you know, the Zionist uh, project in Palestine, the genocide that they're carrying out, it's just, it's it's preposterous. It makes no sense. And I don't know who's advising him. Yeah, it seems like it's a recipe to further
0: alienate people that they actually need to vote for them, as well as alienate people in the Middle East who are clearly in support of the Palestinians here. So I, I don't really see what they're hoping to achieve with this. And I think they've reached a new diplomatic low because they've now asked, China to try and put pressure on Iran for Iran to put pressure on the Houthis to stop these attacks. I mean, it's crazy. I mean, they view China as their adversary, or at least as a global competitor, and I would argue as an adversary as well. And yet, that just that just shows, at least to me, that they're not confident in their own diplomatic abilities and they're kind of running out of options. So they're just going to ask China.
1: Exactly. And what would China have to gain from this if they are an adversary? it's in china's favor to not get involved let the us you know deal with with its own mess they got themselves into this mess they need to get themselves out of this mess and then the idea that first of all china has any leverage over iran or the, or the houthis or ansalallah or that iran has i mean they keep pushing this idea that iran is just the puppet master that's controlling all of these groups in the region and i think that is um you know this mischaracterization is just after so many years, do you really not understand the politics on the ground, the realities on the ground? And do you really think that Iran has that kind of leverage? If they were to take up China, let's just say, just imagine that they were going to say, yes, sure, we'll try to put pressure. Why should Ansarullah listen to Iran? This is not Iran's fight. Iran has supported them, of course, but not to the same degree that people have imagined. And The Yemeni solidarity for Palestine runs deep. It runs decades. It's from the institution. The day that they, in the UN, that they voted to partition the state of Palestine, Yemen was among five countries that walked out. And so Yemeni solidarity with Palestine runs deep. It's the one issue that unites us all as Yemenis. And throughout the decades, we've shown that solidarity materially and, you know, and otherwise. And so why would they listen to Iran when Palestinians are still being slaughtered in Gaza? Um, and so I think the idea is just really preposterous and just highlights like how the U.S. really has no clear policy here in the region other than one of violence and then running to China to try to get them out of it.
0: I mean, it's not to say that Iran isn't helping Hamas or helping uh, Allah or the Houthis or helping Hezbollah with, you know, certain military assets and funding, but they're not directly involved in the planning of certain... Um, no. And, and another thing, too, is that I believe it was in 2015 when the Houthis... When when there was this uprising in Yemen by the Houthis, I think the Iranian leadership was actually opposed to it, but
1: they didn't listen to them. September 21st, 2014, when the Houthis marched all the way from Sada in the north and took over the capital Sana'a, the Iranians were very opposed to it. And they're like, this is a bad idea. Don't do this. And the Houthis very publicly said to them, who are you to tell us what to do? Um, And so (laughs) that was the one, that was the catalyst to everything that ended up happening in Yemen. Um, after that. And, you know, so it's the biggest decision that Ansarullah took as a group, and it changed the course of history of Yemen. And even that at that pivotal moment, they were not willing to listen to what Iran had to say, because it's not Iran's business, what Yemenis do. Um, The idea that they just bow to Iran, or they're just doing whatever Iran wants them to do for what, you know, Yemenis are the ones who've suffered for their, um, you know, because of this war, they're the ones who borne the brunt of this war. There were no civilians in the region that were impacted by what they were calling the war in Yemen or the civil war in Yemen, um, other than Yemenis themselves who were starving and you know being killed in the hundreds of thousands. And um, But it's because they dared to fight this coalition of 17 countries, um, and now they're willing to even put that aside and put the peace process aside and fight for the sake of preventing genocide in Gaza. Well, the US has redesignated the Houthis as a,
0: specially, uh, a special terrorist organization and put them on a list where they wouldn't be able to receive humanitarian aid. So, how would that, or how does that affect what's going on in Yemen right now in terms of, I don't know if you want to call it a stalemate or a ceasefire with uh, Saudi Arabia, um, but I'm assuming that there still is. You know there still are ongoing issues there because so many people, for example, working in the civil services have not been paid ever since um, 2015. That's because of of, of Saudi Arabia's violence uh, towards them. So Saudi Arabia and and the U.S. Um, have actively uh, lobbied for this for, for people in Yemen who worked in the civil services to or and teachers even to not get paid.
1: Yeah. So what was happening is that when they moved the central bank from Sana'a, from the capital to Aden, um the salaries went away with that And um, in 2016. And the coalition-controlled government, uh, that's what I'm going to call them because they're called the internationally recognized government, but really that's just a farce. They're controlled by the UAE and the Saudis in and, and southern Yemen. They were selling oil and gas revenues. Um, They were selling oil and gas in southern Yemen and using those revenues to pocket, you know, for themselves. And Ansarullah was saying that those oil and gas revenues need to be used for paying civil servants. And when they wouldn't listen to them, they wouldn't accept that. um, The Houthis started bombing those areas to say, like, no, we're not going to let you export Oil and gas revenues. If those oil and gas revenues are not going to be used, and so part of the deal that they were about to sign with Saudi Arabia was going to ensure that those uh, oil and gas revenues were being used to pay civil servants. So again, the cost to to Yemen's position on Gaza is huge. It comes. It's it's a massive sacrifice uh, for people who have already sacrificed a lot over the last nine years. This is not. This these are not people who have quote unquote nothing to lose. They have everything to lose. They have the peace process to lose. Because why would Saudi now be seen as signing uh, a peace deal with you know, people who were designated by their allies as terrorists, right? Um, and so that potentially is going to be disrupted if this uh, FTO is not reversed. Uh, on the other hand, there are no foreign assets for the Houthis for them to be able to be impacted by this. Um, but it is going to impact the Yemeni population. And Biden and his administration know this. They told us in 2021, February 2021, When they delisted them from that uh, designation, they said that they'd listened to the UN, that they'd listened to humanitarian groups, that they know this is going to cause immense suffering to the Yemeni population, and that this was a political tool that Trump was trying to use against them. And yet, they had been using this as a bargaining chip as well back in 2022. And now we see them imposing that uh, FTO designation, playing the exact same games while saying that they're better than Trump. And so you know, again, back to Michigan, there's so many Yemenis here, and people see it for what it is. If we're not going to be able to send money back home because aid organizations or banking institutions are not going to be operating in northern Yemen, our families are going to starve. Our own families are going to starve. These are not just like, we've all lost people in this war, but it's going to create an even bigger humanitarian crisis in Yemen. Um, and so it's it remains to be seen what happens. Uh, but I think, that the Yemenis have sacrificed a lot for, for you know, trying to defend essentially their own country from foreign aggression and now supporting the case in Palestine. Well, just one quick point before you have to
0: leave. I know right before we started this interview, we were talking on the International Court of Justice's uh, recent decision to accept South Africa's request um, to call for provisional measures against Israel, and they voted 15 to 2. So, There are 17 judges, 15 of them voted in favor of, and I quote now, the State of Israel shall, in accordance with its obligations under the Convention on the Crime of Genocide, in relation to the Palestinians in Gaza, take all measures within its power to prevent the commission of all acts within the scope of Article 2 of the Convention, in particular, A, killing members of the group, B, causing seriously bodily or mental harm to members of the group, C. Deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction in whole or in part. And D. Imposing measures intended to prevent births. So, unfortunately, they didn't call for an actual ceasefire, so they didn't call for an end of this particular IDF operation. But this is still very positive. I was just wondering what your
1: um, reaction to this decision was. I'm really encouraged by this because I can't imagine that five years ago we would have had a court ruling like this in the ICJ. Um, just the mobilization of people who are who have come out in support of the Palestinians has just been incredible to see. And for the court to accept the case, I was honestly, my, my hopes were on the floor. I was, my expectations were on the floor. I was imagining that they would just reject it based on the technicality that Israel and South Africa don't have uh, a conflict with one another. Um, and the court ruled today that they do in fact, and they you know, cited evidence of why they are in conflict with one another and why the court has jurisdiction over this. So at the very least to say that Israel is now under investigation by the ICJ for genocide, I think is, is, is a is a win for human rights, is a win for Palestinian um, rights. It doesn't end the, the, the hostilities unfortunately. Um, there is no ceasefire and I know pa- people in Palestine have been waiting to hear those words. I don't think Israel would have abided by it anyway. They've already come out, you know, to reject this as an anti-Jewish state, you know, um, conspiracy or whatever else they're calling it. So I don't think they would have abided by it anyway. But I think this just brings us one step closer to seeing the this Zionist colonial project for what it is, and um, and and to respond to the suffering of Palestinians in ways that are not just you know um, moral but also legal.
0: Well, it was really impressive to see the president of the court, Joan Donahue, who has ties to the State Department, actually vote in favor of this. So I think her conscience probably kicked in at a late stage, and that's a, a really positive development. So Shireen Aladimi, it's so great to have you again, and hopefully we can connect again soon and speak more about these issues. And hopefully by then, there will be a ceasefire. Hopefully in better times. Thanks so much for having me. And thank you for watching TheAnalysis.News. If you'd like to support the work we do, you can go to our website, TheAnalysis.News, and hit the Donate button at the top right corner of the screen. Thanks again for watching.